This is Live Wired in Calgary. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for another edition of Live Wired in Calgary. I just saw it today, noticed my file is episode 23, 23 episodes in. Of course, I am your host, Darren Krause, editor at LiveWireCalgary.com. We have this amazing partnership with CJSW 90.9 FM to bring you this show every month, recorded in studio at the University of Calgary, which is located on traditional Treaty 7 land. Hot button is the only way to describe this month's show. We're going to examine the City of Calgary's upcoming mask bylaw. We'll look at school reopenings and in a somewhat COVID-19 related story, we're going to look at further changes to Calgary transit and something we may see more of in the future. Hopefully we've got some time for On Your Radar. I'm sure there's a few things out there that we can shine the spotlight on, but it is a busy show, so stick around. Check out Livewire Calgary on social media, on Twitter at Livewire Calgary, on Instagram at Livewire underscore Calgary, and like us on Facebook. We do a lot of things on demand these days. TV, music, even transportation with things like Uber or the city's e-scooters. You may recall that the city's been running an on-demand transit pilot project up in the North Calgary communities of Carrington and Livingston. It's an app-based transit service where people book rides in advance and they have a specific pickup spot. Its purpose is to establish a transit presence before there's a fixed route service that's available. That pilot program has so far been successful. It's seen greater than expected ridership and app downloads and has provided a level of service that may not have otherwise been seen in the area for some time. With COVID-19 in play now and the city's ridership on transit around 25% of normal, at one point it was 10% of normal, the city had to cut some bus routes and reduce hours on others. That brings us to today. The city is now looking at replacing some of those fixed service routes that have changed with an on-demand transit. I talked with Chris Jordan, Manager of Service Planning at Calgary Transit, about the idea. Here's a portion of that interview. Can you kind of explain to me first off what what sort of layers you applied to this to come up with these routes in southwest Calgary? You bet. So first and foremost, um, ridership is much lower than normal due to the impacts of the pandemic. And at our last meeting of the SPC on Transportation and Transit, um, members of the committee uh, requested that we look into routes that were suspended during the pandemic and before they are restored, examine whether on-demand service would be feasible before fixed route service is reintroduced. And the catchment area that's identified in our current report to the SBC on TNT um, is a size and has characteristics, including much no- lower than normal ridership, uh, that make it possible to examine or explore, as you put it, 
the uh, replacement of several routes with on-demand community shuttle service. Was there anything that may have led you in this direction, say, pre-COVID? Was this an area that, that generally speaking, was seeing a diminishing transit use? You know, for whatever reason, maybe people were within walking distance of the 69th Street station out there, you know, for LRT, or... Um, maybe just uh, generally speaking, it is a it is a higher income area. Maybe people were more apt to use their vehicles. What, what sort of things were you seeing maybe pre-COVID that kind of extended themselves during COVID that kind of made this decision for you? Based on our preliminary findings from our on-demand pilot in the new communities mm-hmm. of Livingston, Carrington, uh, we did identify that there could be a possibility that on-demand service might be valuable in areas that have fixed route transit service that is low performing. Right. The real trigger for that in this area of West Calgary is the pandemic. The impacts of the pandemic uh, took ridership that was suitable for community shuttle uh, service and brought it down to levels that were not sustainable. Right. And that's that's one of the reasons we suspended one of the routes in the area during the pandemic. Sure. So there are four four routes identified here, a uh, 94, 164, 439 and 454. Can you kind of take me through Chris like what would the next steps be? You're obviously, I mean there's some there's some language here in the admin re- uh, in the admin report about, you know, having to to prep the fleet, you know, get all of those things ready. Can you kind of take me through some of those steps of what you would have to do in order to get something like this ready? Sure. Well, we really are at a preliminary stage mm-hmm. uh, of this proposal. Next steps would include further planning and refinement. Uh, we would refine our approach, for instance, to identify the times of day and days of week and the exact routes in which on-demand service would be in effect. Uh, subsequently, in September, we would begin communication with customers and stakeholder groups in the area. So the timeline we've identified and some of the steps that we've identified in the report are to indicate some of those next steps to give our stakeholders and customers, uh, council in particular, some indication of what the next steps would be and to indicate that the soonest we could implement the service would be mid-October because of those steps. Oh, really? So would you, um, and you'll have to excuse my ignorance on this, is the pilot up in Carrington and Livingston complete so you're, it's not operating anymore or is that continuously operating as well? It continues to operate, and in fact, we uh, requested that we have an extension of the pilot so that we can have uh, more solid findings that don't involve the the effects of the pandemic, Uh, so we extended the pilot for another year to conclude in September uh, 2021. Okay, so would this require um, any additional capital purchases, like do you need some of the, some of the the buses or would you use some of the some of the smaller shuttle style buses to run some of these routes for this particular uh, area in west calgary uh, we're identifying it as on-demand community shuttle service Mm -hmm. so we would use our existing fleet 
um, and repurpose it for the uh, intent of using it for on-demand service. So really, um, beyond um, the technology required uh, and training, uh, there's very little um, additional capital cost associated with this. So you had mentioned that you were asked by council or, or committee to examine some of these routes, especially some of these that were that were closed or or altered. Chris, can we anticipate any more, or is this the one that kind of fit all of the criteria for what you were looking for to kind of extend that on-demand to a different area? The size, uh, size of this catchment area and the characteristics under the conditions of the current pandemic are, are what make this area suitable. Mm-hmm. Um, it is possible that we'll learn through the introduction of on-demand service in this area, and we might find that it's applicable in other areas, but that would be a, uh, a longer term, not an immediate next step. Right. So, and I imagine, Chris, that some of that has to do with the fact that you were able to launch it um, as, a, as a new service up in Livingston, Carrington. And I'm sure some of those findings you can apply to this service should it go ahead in southwest Calgary. But this is an existing service that you're going to have to kind of work with. And that brings, you know, some challenges of its own. W- would that be safe to say? Yeah, introducing new service in this form uh, is a big change to our customers mm-hmm. and requires an investment in communications and training prior to implementation. So it is very different than the introduction uh, of um, on-demand service in a community that has no um, existing service. Right. So, I mean, aside from the communication, like, are there any other anticipated challenges bringing it into an existing area where where people are, are used to that regular service, whether it's every 30 minutes, every hour, whatever the case may be, um, is, is it just a, a matter of, of education and awareness for them saying, hey, you can still get your transit service, but now you've got to go through, you know, the, the on-demand transit, you've got to schedule in advance and, you know, we'll determine our pickup stops. Um, is, is it that education process that matters the most? Exactly. So some of the things that our customers get used to over time with fixed route service, like consulting uh, a schedule, uh, checking in on the website to see what detours might be in place, um, it'll be a different form of preparation that's required for on-demand service. They would have to pre-book a trip um, at the time uh, time required before booking is part of the planning and design. We haven't established exactly what that would be yet, but uh, customers would have to pre-book their trip, um, typically using an application uh, that's designed with an attractive customer interface. So it di- does represent a change in the way people would plan and prepare for their transit trip. This idea of on-demand transit is something we could see more of in the future, as the city continues to adapt to that so-called new normal in a post-COVID-19 world. Going from the frying pan right into the fire, 
Well, I guess that wasn't exactly the frying pan, but we are definitely going into the fire with each new topic. We're going to ratchet up its hot buttonness, not a word, but uh, it's all about this idea of mandatory masks. And wow, this one is absolutely sizzling. There are rigid camps on both sides. Last week, of course, the city of Calgary passed a mandatory mask bylaw with a whole host of exemptions, essentially in places where the spread of COVID could actually be the worst. Go figure. But today, while this is airing, the city of Calgary is tweaking the bylaw to ensure that it would withstand a legal challenge and to close any problematic loopholes. We're going to go back, though, and we're going to listen to Dr. Raj Bardwaj, who spoke at the meeting last week, to hear his thoughts on it. We'll also hear from SEMA Chief Tom Sampson, and I'll wrap it up at the end with a few thoughts on what I've seen thus far. So I'm going to use the term mask to mean a non-medical cloth face covering like the one I've got. Uh, It's just a lot easier to say mask. The scientific evidence has progressed a lot in the past two or three months. So even recommendations that were made you know, back in March or April uh, have changed and have evolved as the scientific evidence evolves. I'm happy to provide pages and pages of, of the latest references and stats and graphs and stuff, but your time is valuable and I don't think you want that. I mean, if you do, happy to provide it. But I wanna talk about three things. The evidence for, for masks at the level of the individual at the level of community, and then at the level of policy. So first of all, what does a mask do for the person wearing it? Now, it's kind of obvious that the mask, if you are contagious, you put a mask on, it acts as what we call source control. It doesn't allow your respiratory droplets to go as far. A mask doesn't have to be 100%, but it, it works if you put something in front of your face. It basically makes you less contagious. The second thing that it does, and this is emerging evidence from the past few days, is that face coverings have been shown now to reduce the amount of virus that you breathe in from other people's people's droplet clouds. And that's important. Science says that if you're exposed to a little bit of virus, you're probably only going to get a little bit sick. You might not be hospitalized. You might not end up in the ICU. If you expose yourself to a lot of virus, then you can get very, very sick. And we saw this in places like New York City and Italy when they started running out of personal protective equipment for hospitals. And nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists were getting exposed over and over again. And their viral load, their viral exposure was very, very high, and they ended up getting very sick. So you may have heard that catchy phrase that that my mask protects you and your mask protects me. And the implication is that my mask doesn't protect me. And that's not true anymore. My mask does protect me and it protects you. And I think that's really important when we consider masks. So the next evidence, uh, next level of evidence, no, yeah, there, community. What do masks do to decrease the spread of the virus through a community? And again, there are pages of studies, dozens of them, some stronger, some weaker. But all of it shows that masks reduce the spread of the virus through a community. None of the studies show that a virus starts to spread more or spread faster or people get sick because they use the mask wrong. None of it shows that people actually see themselves as invincible when they wear a mask and then go and do more haphazard things. Those are theoretical risks, but they've never actually been shown by the evidence. 
Lastly, is there evidence for making masks mandatory instead of just encouraging their use like we've been doing? Does policy make a difference? Well, we can start with an example close to home. I work at the Sheldon Schumer just a few blocks away. I care for people with COVID symptoms all the time. They've got fever and cough and shortness of breath. And when I go into the room to see one of them, you better bet I wear a mask. But I also see people who come in for all sorts of things, ankle sprains. And just, you know, there was a person in just the other day, one of my colleagues saw he had been playing basketball all day in the nice sun, and he felt dehydrated, he felt weak. And so he came in, thought he might need some fluids because he got a little bit of sunstroke. And so my colleagues saw him. Those are the kinds of people that we see all the time. But now we wear a mask all the time for every patient. And that's because Alberta Health Services, after a careful review of the evidence, mandated continuous use of masks for all workers, not just the doctors and the nurses, but the cleaning staff, everybody, uh, who can't stay two meters away from their coworkers or patients. So a lot of other health systems in the world are doing that. That's kind of, you know, makes sense if you're in a hospital. Now, there's actually a couple of interesting pieces of evidence that have come from that. One is that it's actually higher risk for a healthcare worker to catch a virus, catch COVID-19 outside their healthcare facility than inside. When they do the contact tracing, they find that doctors, nurses don't get sick at work. They don't get infected at work. They get infected outside in the community. Second little interesting thing that has come from that is our basketball player who was in, who was feeling a little bit weak after playing basketball all day in the sun, he tested positive for COVID. But all of the patients were still safe because we mandate use of masks. All of my colleagues are safe because we mandate use of masks. Another way that mask policy seems to act is as a behavioral nudge. It gives incentive, it gives permission for people to use masks. That's why mask usage increases overall when it's made mandatory. And when there's a critical mass of people using masks, the infection rate drops. Evidence from, for that comes from all over the world. It comes from our hospitals, comes from cities in Ontario, comes from countries in Asia and Europe. There are plenty of examples, again, that we can cite. So take home message around masks really quickly. A couple of things. The balance of the evidence has tipped, even from March and April to now, to like literally this past weekend when more evidence came out. Masks are clearly not the only tool that we should be using, but they fill the gaps that other tools leave behind because none of the tools that we use are perfect. The virus does not spread on its own. We spread this virus and we have very few tools. We've got stay home when you're sick. That's not enough. You can spread the virus when you're not sick. We have stay two meters apart, super powerful tool. Can't do it all the time, too painful. Wash your hands, we've made it easy and people do it. And now we have this other helpful tool, wearing a mask. It's pretty clear from Bardwaj's presentation that the evidence supports the use of mandatory masks. We're also going to hear really quickly here from Calgary Emergency Management Agency Chief Tom Sampson, uh, the city's emergency management director, on why we should be enacting a mask bylaw. Dr. Hinshaw has recently said masks should be complement, not replace other prevention methods. 
The CDC says that the use of masks is part of a comprehensive package of the prevention and control measures that can limit the spread of certain viral diseases, including COVID-19. Your Worship and members of Council, now is the ideal time to prevent the spread of COVID further. It's nice outside. People can gather and do many activities outdoors. We have eight weeks until cooler weather will push people indoors. Patios may close and outdoor social events will become less feasible. We need to use every tool in our toolkit to achieve these outcomes. The most effective tool we have is maintaining at least two meters from those around us, but masks do play one role. Since the debate started to percolate, I've seen a lot more people wearing masks. Honestly, full transparency here, I don't wear one everywhere I go indoors, but I do see more people wearing them than not wearing them. I think both Dr. Bardwaj and Chief Tom Sampson said masks are another line of defense in preventing the spread of COVID-19. You see, I maintained at distance. I'm not in other people's space. I do much of my activity outdoors. But I've also been involved in house parties where food is being shared, serving or cooking tools have been shared, and there's been more than just my immediate family. You know, the, hey, can you grab me a beer, and you don't think about who's touching it kind of moment. I think we've all been there during this whole COVID-19 thing. I think the mandatory mask bylaw is a good idea. I'll start wearing one more often, especially in close proximity to others. But I hope it doesn't make people feel invincible. Every day, I see people not following the health guidelines that we already have. Dr. Bardwad said that none of these single methods is perfect. It's not going to solely stop the transmission of COVID. But put together, they can significantly stop the spread. We still need to be smart about maintaining our physical distance. We need to be making smart decisions about our close interactions with others and washing our hands. When we do all of these things, that's when we'll once again see numbers decline and things get back to that new normal everyone talks about. Check out Livewire Calgary on social media, on Twitter at Livewire Calgary, on Instagram at Livewire underscore Calgary, and like us on Facebook. Right now, we'd be fresh off another successful Calgary Folk Music Festival and looking to some other festivals to get us through the summer. While the Folk Fest had an at-home event, it just wasn't the same. We're going to miss out on the Englewood Sun Fest, the Calgary Fringe Festival, a Taste of Calgary, the Dragon Boat Festival, just to name a few. But if there's anything this COVID-19 situation has taught us, it's how important it is to support local businesses and events. Whether it's your local brewery, cafe, pub, restaurant, hairdresser, corner store, get out. It'll feel good and you can help throw them a lifeline. I also wanted to point out a new campaign in On Your Radar that's called YYC Stay K. Yes, not everyone's going to head out on holidays this year, but they can do a lot at home. YYC Stay K encourages Calgarians to stay at home, explore their own backyard. You can download uh, the Let's Roam app, and apparently there are 100 challenges that take you across the city, and you can support local businesses in doing so. That's an option for those of you looking for something to do. 
What else is coming up in August is City Hall goes on summer vacation. So there's going to be very little coming from City Hall until we get ratcheted up again in September, um, at which point um, you may have seen that the uh, city councillors uh, approved a 0% indicative tax rate increase. That means that they're going to try to work the city hall budget for a 0% tax increase, which means that we could be seeing some cuts. We'll start to hear how that's going to trickle out probably in September and into October. And of course, a decision was made on sending kids back to in-person classes this fall, and that's going to be on the minds of many families this August. Uh, and that is exactly what we are going to talk about next. I'm the father of three school-aged kids. Another one of them is in university, but now working. Um, And we had a situation where my wife and I both work from home. We had the kids to school during the day. And we were like many of you out there taking on this trifecta of roles, parent, educator, and employee, all within the confines of our home. When schools were first closed, we were actually quite pleased with the smoothness of the initial rollout. We were confident that our kids were going to continue to be schooled appropriately. I'm sorry to say it went downhill from there. The teacher-student communication was sporadic at best. I've got two kids in K-6, to so the communication is important. The parent-teacher communication was poor despite our best efforts. Assignments and feedback frustrated parents and kids alike. Now, I know this was our situation, and others did have really positive experiences. But when you have that situation and you tack on having the kids at home, managing their schoolwork, our own work, parenting, getting them off electronics, having them stop bickering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it really became taxing. I would go to sleep at night thinking how much better this would all be if they could just go to school. I tell you all this as a lead up to the recent announcement that kids will go back to school in-person classes this fall. I'm going to play a quick clip from Education Minister Adriana LaGrange and then come back to finish up this discussion. Come September, our school days will look mostly the same as before COVID-19, but with some modifications. On that front, Alberta Health has provided thorough guidance for Scenario 1. It covers a wide array of details, big and small, and offers suggested alternatives. This includes placing hand sanitizers at the entrances of our schools and in our classrooms, the frequent cleaning of surfaces, grouping students in cohorts, and planning the school day to allow for physical distancing. For a specific class example, such as in music classes, playing string instruments is preferred over wind instruments, and each school will have its own plan to allow for physical distancing whenever possible. The new normal COVID-19 environment requires all of us to make some adjustments to minimize the risk of transmission. And everyone will have a role to play so students and staff can stay safe in our schools. I know Dr. Hinshaw will have more to say on public health guidances shortly. I want to stress that we are determined to do everything that we can possibly do to safely return students to class. However, we will continue to adjust protocols as required on the advice of our Chief Medical Officer of Health 
and in consultation with the education system. We are confident that our plan will work. In fact, we are able to somewhat trial test it this summer when school authorities ran in-person summer school programming. School authorities such as Chinook's Edge, Calgary Catholic, Medicine Hat Public, and Progressive Academy have all run in-person summer school programming under the guidelines and have had no major issues. This is great news and I am pleased to see that our plan is working. This is a really tough situation and it's a very touchy subject to talk about. On one hand, I, like many parents, want kids to go back to school. Others, not so much, especially without things like reduced class sizes, barriers between kids, a blended online in-class option, etc. I had this conversation with a friend, and I empathized with him as he's hesitant to send his kids back with what he said was little more than hand sanitizer. I assured him that it was more than that, but I also pointed out that these are kids. You could put all the rules you want in place, and they're likely to test every one of them or break them. Plus, I don't want the teachers to have to constantly be after kids about following rules, whether it's masks or staying behind their barriers or not touching Johnny or Susie or whatever. I want them to teach. So simplicity to me is the key here. If parents follow all the rules around keeping sick kids home, masking up when they enter the building, truthfully filling out the daily self-health assessments for the kids, the kids are probably in a safe situation when you put in the hand washing, the the outdoor time, the, the cohorts, all of the things that Minister LaGrange talked about. Sure, we could mask the kids, but how often would they be fiddling with it? Dr. Henshaw said early on that sending kids back to school has far-reaching societal ramifications. Mental health, wellness, family harmony, the economic impact, etc. From my own personal experience, I would agree. Could we do more? Probably. Would we get a substantially different outcome? I don't really know. There are far too many variables. I'm okay sending my kids back to school with the current plan. If you aren't, I get it. And trust me. We'll be talking about it for all of August. And with that, I've got to wrap it up this month. Thanks to Chris Jordan with Calgary Transit for the interview. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. Enjoy the final month of summer, and we'll catch up with you in a month. <laughs>